0: Hey, folks, it's me, Ben Blacker, the creator and host of The Writer's Panel. Thank you, as always, for listening. It really does mean a lot that you would choose to spend your time with my guest and with me. Um, Another great episode today uh, with Ed Solomon, who has done the show before. Go back and check out our previous conversation, which I think was last year, maybe the end of 2022. Um, But that was a great one, as is this one. Ed gets into so much interesting stuff. I myself am so busy right now. Um, so, you're getting a short intro. You are welcome. But um, the usual stuff applies. If you find this podcast at all valuable, I would urge you to go over to benblacker.substack.com, become a paid subscriber to the newsletter, um, which is where you will uh, get news about the podcast, as well as all the other stuff that I'm up to, as well as interviews with professional writers uh, that do not appear on the podcast, as well as the opportunity to join our Zoom Q&As every month. We've got a great bunch of them planned for uh, February and March. So I hope you will check those out. Again, BenBlacker.substack.com. Become a paid subscriber. Show your support for this podcast because it is, um, you know, work. And (laughs) while it's work I enjoy, it's still, you know, Takes a good part of my day, good part of my week, um, so I do appreciate you listening to it. Thank you so much for that. Thanks for checking out the newsletter. Here's my uh, conversation with Ed Solomon, who, of course, is a terrific writer. We t- we jump off to talk about um, Full Circle, which is his most recent show with Steven Soderbergh. Um, we had also we we talked about his movie No Sudden Move, which he did with Soderbergh. Um, But Ed, you know, is the writer of the Bill and Ted movies. Um, He wrote Men in Black, which is a great movie. It's a really terrific script, which I mentioned in this conversation. Um, A whole bunch of the in-laws. Now you see me. He wrote the first uh, the first Now You See Me movie. We talk about a movie that he co-wrote called Mom and Dad Save the World in this episode, which is, is a funny thing. Anyway, Ed is terrific, Uh, a wonderful writer and a lovely guy, Uh, and so I was was glad to have him back. Here's the conversation. Hope you enjoy it. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers' Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh yeah! And that's it. Let's start it. This is uh, we're doing it. Ed Solomon's back. Um, Ed, let's talk about full circle. It's, I don't know how you got this made. It's so complicated and like trying to pitch something to buyers is so difficult. Is it a case of like an hour long pitch? Is it, or is it just a case of like, oh, Ed and Soderbergh are doing something? Just, you know, give them a pile of money so they can do it.
1: It was a case of me spending the better part of four years, one and a half, intensively and exclusively writing this on spec 506 pages. I, I tried to describe it and it was at the time, it wasn't even just a linear television show. It was a linear television show and a branching narrative. I was going to do two different versions of the same story. One like six and a half hours told straight and one another six and a half, seven hours told through, Individual characters' points of view subjectively—it was nuts. And yeah, because when we were doing Mosaic, when Stephen and I were doing Mosaic, uh, we—it hadn't come out yet when I got this idea to do this. So I didn't know if anyone would even go be into the branching narrative format. Turns out they're not, by the way. Uh, In case you were wondering. Um we'll, we'll we'll talk about that in a minute but <laughs> sure go on, but yeah. when that w- so I was in the middle of we we're in the middle of shooting Mosaic or maybe we we're editing Mosaic and I wanted to try it again but Mosaic had been conceived completely as a branching narrative show which we then when AT&T got purchased or I'm sorry when AT&T purchased HBO or however that worked suddenly we couldn't do what we had wanted to do which was this app version of Mosaic where viewers would choose not the plot, but just which point of view through which they see the story. AT&T said, "Uh, no, it breaks all of our contract rules with Comcast and whoever else. Because I guess it was outside of a paywall, which I guess they could not do. I actually don't quite understand. I was just told that we needed to recut it so that it would be a linear show. That was Mosaic. So I thought, oh, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to try to do the same thing, but design it from the beginning to be both an internal subjective story, i.e. following one character like Ben Blacker. I'm following Ben through his subjective experience of this podcast. And I hear his voice and he's going, I wish I would shut up. And, you know, God dang, he never stops talking. I did this before. I vowed never to have him on again. Like while you're smiling and shaking your head and looking at me, that's actually what you're thinking. And we'd have access to that kind of. And then uh, I wanted to do it as well from the beginning, design it to be a linear show. And the process was fascinating because I learned a ton about subjective and objective storytelling basically and points of view, because there's an entirely different set of like rules and an entirely different kind of suspense that's built. If you're with a character and you are only finding things out as they are, Versus when you have a kind of omniscient point of view, you know more than the characters. So you're like, oh, shit, she doesn't know this is going to be happening. Oh, my God. You know, so it's very different. It's a very different set of tools. and It was fascinating anyway. Because it was a genre, the sort of crime thriller suspense thing that I wasn't really known for, at least now I, 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 I have more of a track record in it. That it's you know many years later, um, and because it was a form, the branching that didn't even actually exist, I couldn't explain it to anyone in any way that they'd want to listen. And then when I tried to tell them the story itself, it got even worse. So I just said, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to start writing it and see what happens. I got about 80, 90 pages. Then I was like, I mean, I got this far. Let me do another hundred. Let me just see if it's really what it's turning out to be. And yeah. And then I think, well, what did I do? Oh yeah. And I showed it to Stephen about 300 pages in. And he said, we're going to need to figure out. He said, yeah, I'll definitely. I'd like to produce it. I was like, awesome. We should figure out who's going to direct it. And I'm like, okay, cool. Meanwhile, we're finished Mosaic. We're editing Mosaic. I'm about eight months goes by. I I think I, had started writing No Sudden Move, which was a movie I I did with Steven. That was also a spec script, but No Sudden Move, I knew I had Steven when I was writing it. I I knew I'm writing a spec, but I have a director who's great and we're gonna share a vision because he's in it from the beginning. I wasn't worried about that. It wasn't like full circle, which was a spec cubed and then cubed again, you know, crazy. Um, So more time passes. I think we're about to start No Sudden Move. And I say, hey, remember about a year year ago, we talked about, yeah, who's going to maybe direct it? Well, I finished it. And he's like, wait, what? And I said, yeah, I wrote about, it was 586 pages, the original draft. 587 if you count the title page. And I go, yeah, we we were going to talk about who's going to direct it. And he goes, oh, I am. And I went, Oh, well, okay. (laughs) That was solved. Yeah, fantastic. And by then, we still were planning, after No Sud Move came out, we still were planning to do both a branching narrative and a linear show. And the idea was going to be, you talked about complicated. The idea was going to be, we were going to shoot a regular day with regular cameras and the cast and the sets and whatnot, and then finish the day, and then using different cameras, same actors in an entirely different shooting style, shoot the subjective one, which would probably be another few hours to each day. Steven shoots incredibly quickly, especially compared to anyone else. And so we could fit it in time-wise, but then we we were both after, after planning it and talking with HBO and realizing all the tech, and we started having a lot of tech work done for it, building out the platform so that it could do branching. There was a moment where Stephen and I looked at each other and we we're like, "Is HBO even going to be ready with the tag? And if they're not, is this something we really can do? We already have a really complicated story. Are we really going to shoot it twice and then re-edit it? And, and I mean, edit it. we weren't
0: going to repurpose any footage. And we decided, you know, let's just shoot the linear, and we did. So, so there's this alternate universe where this other version of this exists this this subjective version exists but, you know it sounds like the tech is one part of it and that's like an interesting and fun aspect of it for you guys in the storytelling like what's the interesting part of the subjective storytelling for you like what is that both in mosaic and now in in full circle like what what was that tickling for you. Some of it was
1: just I'm always trying to learn as a writer. I'm always trying to be a better writer on the other end of something than when I started it. So, uh some of it was just, you know, this is really interesting to me to experiment with this form, you know. Why not? And no one's doing it, so let me try and see what it teaches me and see if it, we come up with something interesting. And some of it was I knew from the beginning And this stuff all stayed in full circle, the the show that, you know, was on um, the air. Uh, I, I knew from the beginning that I wanted it to be the kind of story where one person's protagonist is someone else's antagonist. And you could tell the story from any number of points of view. And it would be compelling, hopefully. And the people that you're kind of rooting for, or let's say maybe projecting onto or subjectively identifying with in another version of the story from someone else's point of view, those people are the antagonists. So the original ones were this character called Louis, who was, um, uh, Gerald Jones played, who was one of the young guys that came from Guyana, Louis and Javier played by Shay Cole beautifully, uh, They were, their story was two guys who are leaving home to try to, you know, running away, basically, to try to find a better life in America, get involved with the wrong people because of how they got here, and then are trying as hard as they can to get out. And the obstacle to them getting out is Samantha Brown, played by Claire Danes, and Timothy Oliphant playing Derek, her husband. And they have to, in order to get out, they have to break into the apartment and get this thing, and et cetera, et cetera. Similarly, if you're Claire Danes, you were involved in something that is starting to slowly creep itself back after 20 years of you thinking it was gone. And y- your only obstacle to, you know, getting sort of absolving yourself, so to speak, is these people who were the protagonists earlier so that you can, you know, and that was it. I mean, that was, that was, <laughs> that, that was what interested me. What interested me uh, in general in the branching concept was, you know, it's, it's interesting to follow a person as they're discovering something with only very limited information. That's an interesting way to tell a story, but it's also, I was curious, could I, Tell the same story in a different, in an entirely different manner, and have it not just would it be the same story, but how different would it be, and why? So that that was that was also fascinating to me.
0: This, so this is something. So we've seen this now from you the past few years. You know, with with mosaic and now full circle, um, this idea of whose story this is. You know, who is our protagonist? What are their like telling the story through perspectives? Was this something that you know you were even mentally taking stabs at in the past? Is this present in your other work or is this a new interest in the past, you know, decade?
1: It was about a decade ago, almost exactly a decade ago, where I met with Stephen and he said, I wanted to do, I met with him to do this. In fact, I think I sat down with Casey Sober, who's produced all three of these things I've written that Stephen's directed. And said he said, "Are you a fan of Steven Soderbergh?" And I'm like, Duh. And he said, "Would you be interested in trying something very experimental?" He wants to do a 10 minute piece that's like a branching story. And I said, "Yeah." So <clears throat> I think i I think I said I was going to be in New York <laughs> anyway <he went, laughs> because they weren't going to fly me to go do this or something. I think I said something like that and got on a next like flight and just which by the way for cut to for the next couple of years i flew i had it down i was on these i just i flew uh sometimes twice a week to new york um i get so many miles and used so many miles and i figured out which in coach you could actually was like the one that no one would sit next to you i had it all i had it all down like which flight which seat where could i you know, be guaranteed that I'd have the most space if somebody sat next to me. You know, I use it, I considered it a work day. I just would figure a work day where nobody can call me, sit on a plane. When I finish, finished, I'm in New York anyway, uh, or vice versa, or back in L.A. So I said, yeah, look, let's, I'll meet. We met, threw some ideas around. Uh, he had already written a kind of rough, you know, eight, nine page thing. He sent it to me. I rewrote, sent it to him. We went back and forth a bit. That was fun. He shot it. Um, In one day, he shot this little 10-minute piece with, I want to say, 76 setups. Insane, like insane in one day. Yeah, crazy. Stephen cut it together, ran the deck and went, yeah, I think this could be interesting. So then we said, let's do a longer one and started Mosaic, which began as another spec until HBO picked it up about maybe 6 months into the process of writing it. So my interest isn't specifically in branching. In fact, I've 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 kind of come out the other end of it and gone I'm not sure I understand the reason to be in storytelling yet and gaming absolutely. And I've learned a ton about, you know, the lean in and lean versus lean back and, you know, what do we actually want from a story that's being told to us? What do we want as storytellers, people to be able to focus on? And that's been really fascinating. What's been the most interesting to me is not the form itself, but I've gotten to work in a genre, these sort of crime stories and suspense character stories that are the ones I love watching. And I finally now have 10 years of practice and writing it um, and I love writing that. I really love writing in that genre. That milieu, I guess. You know,
0: like it feels like you've taken to it as if you were meant to be writing in this genre forever. You know, but uh, like it's we can look at you know the first thirty years of your career was these you know big great comedies. So what is it about this crime stuff that is is that feels I don't know right to you?
1: I really love a good yarn. That's why I like reading. It's like it's what I like watching, you know. Uh, I think I got sort of slid backwards into comedy. I always thought comedy was what I wanted to do. It was what I wanted to do. I love comedy. I love great comedy. I like making comedy, usually with people. I've never been really great at doing comedy solo. It's I think it's very hard. Well, it's certainly hard for me. I I don't have the kind of brain that on his own, you know, can sit down on my own, I should say, can sit down and just come up with jokes that are A plus jokes consistently. But I love being in a room with funny people and throwing stuff around when Chris Matheson and I were doing Bill and Ted and a few other things we did. I mean, there was no more joyful experience than having the divining rod facing toward whatever makes you laugh and just following that. And that was so fun, very, very, almost like a drug experience, very addictive, you know. However, and working on Gary Shandling's show, the first Gary Shandling show, in a room of some of the smartest and funniest comedy writers I've ever met in my life, some of the f- literally funniest people in the world. You know, I I realized that early, and I was in my mid-late mid, 20s at that point, okay, I know enough about comedy and comedy writing to know that, th- that what they're doing is amazing and that what they're doing I can't do like I'll never be able to do it like that and starting around then I began about a 20-year a period of failing drastically at trying to write more serious stuff while still being able to do like I got this job to do Men in Black it was a it was based on a comic book. There were three issues of this comic book and it was actually very dark. Actually, it was very serious, the comic book. And I was like, this should be a comedy. This should be a comedy and this should be the tone. And in fact, I, I was thinking I shouldn't do this because this is this dramatic comic book that, that they're not going to like my take because I think it has to be a comedy. I think it needs the kinds of leaps of faith you need with a comedy because the science fiction just is not that good anyway. And, so when I told them, I don't think this I can do this because I would do it this way and this is how I would do it. They're like, that. do that. Yeah, I would like that. So I was still writing that stuff for a living. And I'm not saying unfortunately, because I'm so grateful that Men in Black exists in my life. It's been a gift in so many ways, so many ways. And I'm proud of the film and the work of the other people, Barry Sonnenfeld's work and Eric Brevig Visual Effects, Bo production design. I mean, you can go down the list, Danny Elfman, music, and the cast. I mean, I'm so proud of the work those guys did, or, or in awe of the work they did. I very lucky when you get people working at the tops of their game like that, you know, to have them execute something. And you, you get lucky. But because that, what I was going to say is I don't want to say, unfortunately, it was so successful, because thank God it was so successful. But because of the success of that, and it was in a not dissimilar genre to Bill and Ted, sort of weird blend of sci-fi and comedy kind of thing, that's the stuff that kept coming to me. It was a bit of a safer route for me. I didn't have the confidence in myself as a writer or a thinker or a voice to pursue with any discipline things that weren't that. It was so much simpler for me to kind of just keep tilting in the direction where people seemed to want me that I started to reinforce muscles that I didn't want to have anymore, but wasn't, I didn't have the courage to train the other muscles, or at least as um, I should say, I had the courage because I kept trying. I just didn't have the time that it would take, nor did I have enough people interested in the stuff I was writing that wasn't comedy or sci-fi to get some made or made well, which is where you really learn. You know, you learn, at least for me, the way I have learned the most is working with someone who is, you know, really good, getting stuff made. And sadly, Failing is when you learn the absolute most or when something doesn't entirely work or it's really humiliating because you thought something could be amazing and it's awful or or sometimes it it didn't get made well, you know, and it doesn't your defenses want you to feel like it's not my fault. Somebody screwed this up. But the truth is, had I written a better script, I probably would have attracted a better level of person. It's a cycle that perpetuates. Yeah. So I did a few, I wrote a few, they were failures on the, you know, this sort of genre kept trying, kept trying, kept trying, but it wasn't until Mosaic and honestly the faith that Stephen showed in me and the time that it took to create it and the buffer that he gave me from just being who he is. I didn't have to deal with uh, failing in public with it. I could sort of write a draft. It would suck write another one, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that that became the low, low low rung of the ladder that finally got me to something. I don't want to not write comedy. I just I just know and this is the final part of the answer to your question. I think when you get for me, when I get older, the older I've gotten, the harder it is to do comedy, not because of cultural changes. And there's that too, but that's not the reason. Because for me at least, writing comedy requires a, a kind of slightly agitated, slightly elevated, um, more vigilant state of mind that's hard to be in all the time, especially as you get older. For me, for me, laughing, I love making jokes. I love laughing with people. I appreciate good comedy. I just, and I, as I was saying before, I know it well enough to know that I don't want to do it even like, I don't even want to do it like at a B plus level, you know.
0: Even before Mosaic, like you were starting to get your, the reps in, in the crime genre. And so we're getting more comfortable with it. And and so when Mosaic hit, it was just, you, you had done the work, you know, it's, you had sort of internalized it but now it was time like you were in the right circumstance for it to go out into the public. And now the stuff that's come after that, you know, full circle, you're working at a level you want to be working at in that job.
1: I appreciate that. You know, obviously with each project, you're like, crap. If I
0: could do that again. I would do it.
1: I could do that so much better now that I've done it once and know what it is. You know, um, I'm excited about these new things I'm working on. I feel like they're hopefully steps forward.
0: And this sort of leads me to something I wanted to ask about, because it occurred to me while watching Full Circle. um, And I also recently rewatched Men in Black, which like, that's a great script. Don't sell yourself short on that one. Everyone brought their A game, including you. Thank you. I wanted to talk about rewriting a little bit. And it struck me that like Full Circle is so tight, like it's so it's such a machine of plot and character motivation what was the rewriting, what was the drafting process like, both, you know, before shooting and then during shooting, if there wasn't?
1: Because it began in the branching, and it was, it was branching and linear, when we threw away the branching, I wanted to incorporate a fair amount of some of the stuff I'd learned into the linear. Also, we... I'm trying to think of when the big rewrites came. I had been constantly rewriting it and rewriting it and kind of honing it as I would home in on what it was wanting to be. When Stephen started to focus, he finished his last project and he came on to this. He had a couple of ideas that were really strong ideas. Um, One was pull one of the plots out. I think I'd overcomplicated it. There were a few others. They required a gigantic, um, gigantic sort of reconceptualizing. One of my little pause here is I'm going to. I know this is just audio, but I am going to show you a. You can describe this, Ben. I know that that nobody will be able to see it. That's two episodes out of six. There are three boards that look exactly. Oh my god! (laughs) Now just try.
0: I think the folks have seen, you know, the murder boards in crime shows (laughs) when they're trying to put together the path of the murderer, connect the victims. This is like that uh, times 10. (laughs) I guess that's where my question about rewriting came from is like when you have that, like you've plotted it within an inch of its life and you know all these details. And then you or someone else starts starts pulling at those strings. How does it not all fall apart? Or how do you like muster yourself? Like just the, <laughs> the wherewithal to go in and be like, all right, I'm going to dig in and start pulling some of this stuff out or changing some of this stuff.
1: Two great questions uh, and are still struggles with, you know, I struggle with, and I know a lot of my writing friends struggle with. Uh, the first one, which is how do you just do it on a pure physical level? And the other one is the emotional. I think an emotional... uh how do you do it emotionally, I guess, psychologically? So let me start with emotionally um, to say, you have to be like your, well, I don't know, like your GPS, like the voice of your GPS. You know, when you miss a, you miss an intersection or you turn left on the first left when you're supposed to, you're, you do the sharp left instead of the veer left. And now the thing is, and it used to say recalculating root. And then it would then it would go on. Now it just shows you that it's recalculating route. It just recalculating. There's a new route. Sometimes it'll say go back and make a U-turn, but most of the time it sends you to another street in a different direction. And gradually you get back on track. And I try to have that sense of equanimity, which is like, okay, it's different now. Sometimes you're being you're rewriting because you're being told you must. Sometimes You know, by the person who is in control of it. And then your job is to figure out one of several things. How do I give them what they need while still making it actually better, while being something I can do? And if I can't, how willing am I to be fired, walk away, whatever? And usually the answer is, I'm going to figure out how to do this. And usually the answer further is if I don't see it the way they see it is to give it serious thought and when you're really listening to someone else and when they know that you're you're being respectful of, of what they have to say even if you disagree for the most part you can get yourself through any situation and you can you can find value in a lot of what they're saying often it's you've, I'm sure you've heard this many times on your your podcast you know it's not the note it's the note, Beneath the note that you're really looking for, I mean, I know that's become a, a trope, but very often your your job is not to solve prescriptively what is being dispensed. Your job is to go. Okay, there's a problem here somehow. Let me let me do the work of figuring out what the problem is, where does it really begin, and how do I really solve it now. A lot of times, especially early in my career, you I would solve notes by trying to solve them right in that little spot where the note the problem was. Tweak dialogue, change the structure of a scene, whatever. I have found that to not be a good idea. For me, what no matter what the note is, I then you know, I try to remain and not get not allow the feelings that come up to me, which are usually self-critical, depressing despairing anxiety provoking sometimes angering you know all that let that kind of wash over me and just sit with it and just trust that that'll do its thing and then when that's done go okay what what's this this no longer is what i thought it was going to be it is Not the response I wanted, which was, it's great. We're shooting it just as it is. Nobody's ever done that before. You're a genius. Instead, what you get is, it's not that. Okay. I'm going to go forward again. And here I go. And try to be grateful for the fact that maybe this will be better now. I'll do a better draft. The process thing is it can be very um very very hard not to try to preserve as much as you can you know and there's a reason to preserve as often a lot of stuff but I feel that I I have to be really careful not to to fall into the trap try and do as little as possible, rather to think in terms, not in terms of quantity of work, but like, how gracefully can I solve this? That's what I like to see. How elegantly can I solve this? It's not, how can I do as little work as possible, or how can I save as much as possible? It's, how can I s- solve this in as few strokes so as possible, or how can I view the entire piece as iterating again, even if the changes on a quote unquote percentage level are 3%, 7%, I have to look at it as a whole organism in the same way that like your skin, whether they, you know, your skin is an organ, right? All of your skin. So they say, if you have a spot and you have to get that exercise or excise, I mean, you know, cause you have a potentially cancerous spot. You need to deal with that, but it, it affects the whole organ of the skin, and you have to be careful on the whole organ of the skin. I feel like the script is that way, too. It's the whole organ of the script is affected even with the smallest puncture, including, you know, I was thinking weirdly about the and it's an awful metaphor, so maybe my apologies if this is tasteless and, you know, and not cool, but, like, when the Challenger exploded, the space shuttle, I, I believe – it was like there was like a ring washer or something, right? Was not fit correctly. A tiny thing, and it was just the whole thing. And you know, it's it takes hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of micro decisions being made correctly for something to work. It takes one bad decision and the whole thing cannot work. And I tried to, on a process level, look at the whole piece and go, so it's not complete yet? How does this reverberate through the whole thing? And the, the reason that board that you were looking at, the whiteboard that looked so insane and really was insane, um, <laughs> I was rewriting like crazy. I was rewriting six episodes and I had six weeks to rewrite. Well, it was about 450 pages at that point and pretty significantly rewrite. Every page was touched to a pretty big amount and so in order to keep track of things, this is what I did. I the, the black writing is the first pass through where I take the script that already exists and I re-outline it on the board, on the whiteboard. Usually it usually takes two, three, four, or five whiteboards, beat by beat by beat. Not as if it's a script that already exists, as if it's an outline of something I'm just about to start. So it's like so that helps me to view it as maybe it's not written yet. It's an outline of something I'm just about to start. That maybe I can keep, maybe I've already thought about some scenes and maybe some of those scenes will flow really naturally. But I really try hard to have very much like the beginner's mind, so to speak, as they say about it. Which is okay. Here's the here's the outline of what already exists. Then I look at that outline and I I will have gone. Th- I will have taken time heard whatever notes people have or whatever thoughts I have if no one's given me notes yet or in the case with Steven his notes or a producer's notes or whatever or my friends after I've given friends a script and before I've turned it in or whatever respect I will have sat with those notes without trying to solve them for as long as possible I will let I will try to get to let myself get to a place where and it's more of a it's more of an emotional feeling but where i have a point of view about the rewrite that feels cohesive and when i have that i go into the script and i and i read through it usually standing up and usually with a with a sharpie for some reason and printed on very thick paper it needs to be not on my computer because it can't be on the thing i wrote it on and for some reason it can't be flimsy paper for me and i don't know why i don't know why I, I th- might because of the letters bleed through and I'm, I just don't know why, but the thicker the paper, the more I feel like I can
0: mess with it. I
1: don't know why And I, I stand is, I think it triggers different body emotion, you know, memory synapses. And then when I've gone through the script and I have a pretty good idea of now a large amount, maybe not all of what I want to do. I then with a blue pen, go back up to that board and I start crossing out the scenes that are cut. I, I modify them with the blue pen. So I always keep track of what's new and what's old, you know, and I might, and when I'm outlining the old script, when I'm putting it up, I always leave a lot of space. Like one third of the space is taken up by the outline. And then two thirds is, is open space. Cause I know that I'll have a blue outline going down next to it. I also make sure that I always have really small, sharp, pointed um, dry erase pens because sometimes dialogue starts to happen and I want to just write it in the same spot I don't I just want to have it all up there and then I will use another color pen to make write just notes to myself I'll use often red. if I do this don't forget to do that later you know blah 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 but then and then that thing that I showed you there were all these numbers and circles and there was all that the numbers where I was reordering scenes and I was moving some stuff from one episode to the other. So one color was episode three, numbers of scene order, one color was episode four, numbers of scene orders. And so it was, it just, it gets, it's all about for me keeping track and not getting overwhelmed. And the fact that it was 400 some odd pages means that a screenplay now feels like nothing. It's a short story when you're getting on.
0: So you you touched on a couple of things that I th- find absolutely fascinating. And one is like the physicality with which you have to approach this. Like you are wrestling this thing to the ground with the thick pages and the sharpie, and then up at, on your feet standing at the board. Like that's it's a really interesting way to approach it that is so different from sitting at the computer, right? And like I think that difference helps the psychology up, right? It puts you into the rewriting mindset.
1: Not just puts me in the rewriting mindset, which is very important, you know, to read it for me in a different spot, not read it on the computer, as I was saying. There are things that put me in the rewriting mindset, but also Chris Matheson and I had a movie once that nobody went to see and it wasn't a very good movie. But there was one really great joke in it. It was it was called "Mom and Dad Save the World," and there was this joke where the John character played by John Lovitz, a guy named Todd Spingo, He says, uh, "Most people only use ten percent of their brain." He says, "But I," and he was an idiot. "I am using one hundred percent of my brain." He was saying, "He was proud of that," and I often feel like I'm using more of a less functional brain. Than most, And I need to do everything I can to maximize it. And so standing up triggers different parts of the brain, sitting down. I will lie down sometimes and think. And every script is different. Every project is different. So sometimes it's like intensive re, um, I'm sorry, intensive outlining, standing. Sometimes it's me speaking out loud a lot about something to hear it or to hear how it sounds to people. Sometimes I will handwrite for a long time before going. This thing I just finished, I did something I would never tell someone else to do and I've never done before. I didn't even outline it. I had a shape in my head. It was it was only a, an hour long. And I had a shape. I knew approximately what happened in spots. And I just started and then I finished and it was like, wow. So it was just different. That's not something that I'll next one. I'm sure that won't happen, but finally I'll say being awake to the possibility that each script may want a different process than the last one
0: yeah i think that's that's really smart the other thing you mentioned which which i just want to comment on is like this idea of approaching rewrites and asking how gracefully can i execute these new drafts to me it takes the laziness out of it, and it takes the ego out of it, right? The reasons that we tend to want to preserve so much are either that we don't want to do the work or that we are in love with our own voice so much.
1: Well, I'd add one more element, which is um, ego-based, which is um, we feel that it that it reflects negatively on us if it's not working yet. So, and we're really anx- anxious, and we just want to quell our own anxiety and solve it as fast as possible, which means often little work. I'm sorry, but I didn't mean to cut you off. You, I didn't really.
0: No, I, I think that's a great point. It's just, it to me, it's such an elegant way of put it, of like thinking about rewrites, and and it does put all that other stuff aside and just saying like serving the project, you know which is ultimately what we're doing
1: serving the project. That's something I learned a lot of from Stephen about, which is he often would say, what is it? What is the itness of it? What is it wanting to be trying to, in the way that you do with a child, you know, like what is this kid? What is this kid wanting to be?
0: What is, how can I help guide that kid into that? Yeah. Um, well, and especially for you right now, that seems like a good way to think of things. That's a good place for us to leave it. Um, do you know what's next for you? Do you know what, what are you working on these days?
1: I am working on, uh, I have a an original television series, uh, sort of suspense, the thing. I have a, um, it's an adaptation of a book that I'm uh, going out with, with another person, a really wonderful writer, director, who's going to direct a book I love. And I'm unfortunately can't talk about it yet. So that might, you know, that would, I'm really excited about. And then I have a big sci-fi idea, a big kind of universe build thing that I've written a big chunk of. And um, those are the three things I'm working on in different stages. One I've written, I've written a pilot of, wrote it on spec, actually. Um, and talking to a few people about. And then the other one I am about to start outlining. And the the science fiction one is uh I sort of started it a while ago and put it aside and then resumed. So I I don't, it's not like I can write two things at one time. It's just it's like air traffic control. You have some plane about to take off, you have one about to come in, you have one just you know circling, and it kind of feels more like that.
0: Yeah, and that that feels so much. I don't know. It feels like one, that's how we have to do things, right? It's like, yeah, I have to work on three, four projects at a time, trying to pitch one, trying to write one, polishing another one. Um, but the other is that's a more manageable way to do it instead of like pages one to 90 all in one one go. Um, Ed, thank you so much. Uh full circle is great. Folks should check it out if they haven't seen it already. And uh congratulations to you on all the stuff. Uh, let's talk soon.
1: Ben, thank you very much. And it's always, honestly, it's not just a pleasure. It's really an honor to be on with you. I think you're really great at what you do. And I'm really grateful that you had me on.
0: You're very kind.